Okay, now my recording is going. Okay, so when the atonement takes place, of course, the atonement is 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 in the mind of God from eternity past. Um, you know, the Lamb of the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. The Book of Revelation says. Um, and then what a, what is accomplished on the cross takes place within history, but it was 2,000 years ago, right? Okay. So the question now is, how is that applied to me? How, how, how do I get it? And the answer here, we're starting, and by, by the way, Wanda, we're starting on page uh, 18, top of page 18. And we are, uh, we're going to be talking here about union with Christ. And if you're doing the reading along with us, you, you actually... Uh, find that John Murray calls union with Christ the closest thing of all the items on this list, the closest thing to the word salvation. So you're, you're running down this list and saying, okay, so when was I saved? You see election, you see atonement, you see uh, justification, you see this whole list of terms that we're going, that we're studying through. When does it actually happen? And so the salvation event is accomplished when we are united with Christ. So we've defined it here as that identification of an individual during his or her lifetime. Okay, so not not something that's accomplished in eternity past or when Christ died on the cross, but something that happens within time, okay, during your lifetime with the atoning work of Christ that functions as the fountainhead from which every spirit blessing derives. So because we are in Christ, all the rest of the items on our list, our order of salvation, come to us because we have been united with Christ. So Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So every one of the blessings associated with salvation accrued to us through Jesus Christ. Now, there is a sense in which union with Christ has a decretal act, uh, aspect by which identification is accomplished in Ephesians 1, 4, uh, speaks in those terms. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay, And so there's a sense in which, in the mind of God, uh, it's, it's already accomplished. In fact, we, we talked about that uh, in uh, Systematic 1 with the doctrine of God. And we talk about the eternality of God or the timelessness of God. God is not bound by time like we are. So, you know, we're linear creatures. We, we work our way through the timeline. But God is above time, before time, outside of time. And so there's a sense in which he can say before the foundation of the world, union with Christ has occurred. Uh, but it actually happens in terms of application to us when we identify with the atoning work of Christ in time, okay? Sometimes we wonder where we should put this in the order of salvation, and uh, should we put it at, you know, or, or, you know, where does it come? And I'm putting it up front because, as we've defined it, all the rest of the benefits of salvation derive from it. Uh, we find here that election is in Christ, okay? We, we just saw that. Uh, Ephesians 1, 4. He chose us in him, in him, in Christ. We are made alive in Christ. Okay, we find. Uh, so we, he, we have been given new life in Christ. Definitive sanctification. We died with him in Christ. So we, so we, we, we make our breach uh, with the power of sin because we have been united with Christ. We're free from the law in Christ. We, we died to the law because we are in Christ. We are sanctified progressively because we are in Christ. If we're in Christ, we're new creatures. And for that reason, the old has gone, the new has come. And so we get all kinds of commands then to press forward in our sanctification. And then we are glorified in Christ as well. So uh, we find that uh, we, we are found in him. Uh, and uh, are glorified in the last day. So all of these benefits accrue to us because of our connection with Jesus Christ. The, ben the, the benefits of union with Christ are, we can, we can pretty much 
class them two ways. Now, we, we said all the benefits of salvation come to us in Christ, but there's really two classes of benefits. And sometimes uh, the reformers talked about a double benefit. Yeah, I give you a Latin word there just so you can impress uh, your, your significant other after class here. But the double benefit of union with Christ. Uh, it's important that we don't think of union with Christ as some sort of pantheistic, ontological uh, merging of our persons. Okay, It's not as though we become God or we become Jesus. Uh, some some sects actually do believe that. Okay, that you actually uh, become ontologically one. You become. You have a. You have. Uh, you have divinity flows through your veins because you've been united with Christ. But that's that's not not the case. Uh, it's just it's a uh, it's a metaphorical expression here that we've been united with Christ. Uh, at the same time, the texts that we've looked at already do suggest that the believer's association with Christ is more than just a reclassification. You know, we used to be in Adam, now we are in Christ. So, you know, erase our name off the in Adam list and put our name on the in Christ list. It's not as though it's something that is without experience. When we are united with Christ, something actually happens to us. There's a change in our disposition. That's what regeneration is, right? Regeneration is a new disposition a change in who we actually are. We're a new creature, new creation in Christ, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. And so many of the trans, uh, reformers dealt with this tension by proposing a double benefit or twofold benefit of the believer's union with Christ. There's the legal benefit under which justification is the major term. And we also can include there our adoption as sons, um, and, and such. Uh, but the other benefit then is regeneration. Okay. And it's important to recognize that when we get saved, we are reclassified. That's what justification is, right? Okay. We, we are viewed by God as being perfectly righteous, even though we're not. Because his righteousness is credited to our account. It's an accounting term. Uh, and, and just as, you know, you, uh, you know, you transfer, you know, transfer money as a, as an accountant from one column to another, nothing actually happened when you, you know, move money from column to column. Uh, nothing actually happens to you when you are justified. But along with that justification comes regeneration and with it then the, the fruit of that sanctification. We become new creatures in Christ. Now it's very important that we keep those separate. Okay, and and uh, much of the history of of Christendom is 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 wrapped up in the confusion of those two ideas, right? Uh, it's it's not as though our justification happens to us because we are sanctified. Okay, it's it's not as though uh, who we are and what we do now is what earns us a place into heaven. Okay, so justification is not because we are new creatures. Justification is not because that we are starting to do good things because of our sanctification. But the opposite is the opposite is a problem that has been very common within Protestantism. And the idea here is that you don't have to do anything at all in order to advance in your sanctification. Now, there's this idea called Keswick. Uh, Keswick theology, uh, the idea that you let go and let God. Okay. And so, so the idea here is you get your sanctification the same way you get your justification. God does it all, but that's not true with sanctification. Okay. Because regeneration actually does something to us so that we are no longer the totally depraved creatures we once were. We are new creatures in Christ. And as a result, have the capacity, have the ability to please God. And sanctification takes the form of doing that. Okay. You know, if we want to wrap up sanctification in a single word, it's obedience. You're obeying because God has made it possible. So it's important to see that there are two aspects of our union with Christ. There's a legal benefit for which we do nothing. Christ does it all. 
There's also an experiential benefit, also accomplished initially by Christ, but that is a, once, once that is accomplished, once we have been given new life, we are now charged with actually running with that. So using the new nature that Christ has given to us in order uh, to advance in holiness. Okay. And all of this comes because we are in Christ. Okay. One thing I need to say here, and, and perhaps, you know, I, 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 I sometimes hesitate to, uh, you know, bring up discussions that you might not even know are out there. Uh, but there is a, it's been common over the years to talk about union with Christ in fundamentalist dispensational circles as, as something that is, that has to do only with our entry into the church or our spirit baptism. And that's because as we look at the scriptures, we find, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that we are baptized into Christ and that's code for being brought into the life of the church. So we are baptized into Christ and all of you, I, well, I guess I can't say all of you, but I, I'd like to think that all of you have been baptized. You've been buried by baptism, with, by baptism into death, raised to new life. This is done in the context of a local church uh, because that is the entry right into the local church. So there's a spirit baptism where we're baptized into the body universal, which is illustrated by water baptism in the church local. Okay. And so this, this phrase in Christ shows up here. We're baptized into Christ. And so some have said, okay, this idea of being in Christ is something unique to the New Testament because there was no church in the Old Testament. There was no baptism in the Old Testament. And so no one was united with Christ in the Old Testament. I think that may be a little bit too simplest, simplistic a way of speaking to this idea. Um, it is true that Old Testament saints were not baptized into the body of Christ that is the church. That is true. At the same time, in fact, they were believers, and I believe they were, there were many believers in the Old Testament, there is only one means by which they could have received their salvation. What is it? How how, how are the Old Testament saints saved? Not a trick question. (laughs) By faith in the particular promise of God given to them. Okay. That Abraham was the promise of, of a son. So they, okay, so, so that's the expression. So they expressed faith in the promise that was to be fulfilled in Christ. Christ. Okay. So their salvation is in Christ. They're, they're, now it's true that early on, Adam, you know, Abraham, some of the, some of these early figures in the Bible would not have been able to name Christ. They wouldn't have been able to say Jesus Christ or even have recognized anything beyond this very vague seed promise, right? Okay. Nonetheless, they are saved by the work of Christ and by no, no other means. There is no other means under heaven whereby you must be saved other than faith in the promises of God that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so Old Testament saints were united with Christ. Otherwise, they don't have any of the benefits of what he accomplished on the cross. And so I think we have to think in terms here of union with Christ as having sort of a double double sense. There is union with Christ, being connected with Christ for all of the redemptive benefits that are only in him. And then there's also this sense of being in Christ, which is talking about being a part of the body of Christ that is the church. And so uh, even though in Christ is used in both senses, uh, usually the scriptures are quite clear uh, which ones, which one is in view in any one context. Now, some of you are saying, you know, I never even considered the possibility that there was a debate there. Uh, but anyone have any questions, uh, follow-up questions on that, on that issue? I know perhaps if you've been schooled 
in dispensational thought that that may be something that uh, you've been taught over the years uh, that there was no union with Christ in the Old Testament. And uh, I'd like to suggest that that's that's not quite exactly the way it ought to be put in that in that blanket sense. Any questions? Okay, then moving on from union with Christ here, this connection with Jesus Christ, this organic connection with Jesus Christ, whereby we are, we not only receive the forensic benefits, the legal benefits, his obedience accounted to us, our sin accounted to him, but also, uh, this, this, this new, this new nature of regeneration. How does this actually tease its way out in the life of the believer. And we move here to the question of the effectual call and regeneration. And the reason I put them together is because I would, I'm going to argue here that regeneration is that which makes the call effective. Okay. So let's see if we can't uh, tease that out. So the definition here of the effectual call is the gracious summons whereby God efficaciously, effectively ends an individual's resistance to God by imparting to him the new nature. Okay, so there is a call to salvation. Now, there's some, I would say here, who who differentiate between the efficacious call and regeneration and put the efficacious call prior to the exercise of faith. So God calls us, then we exercise faith, we repent, and then God responds by giving to us regeneration. Uh, but that's actually an incorrect understanding here. It's, pro- it's best to think of the efficacious call and regeneration as the same thing. And, it, and, if, and if you if you think about it, it it's, it's the only logical way to think about these terms. Okay, what is it that causes us to respond in faith to the summons of God? Okay, well, it's nothing in ourselves, right? We know that. Because we've studied last semester, we talked about depravity. There's nothing that we can possibly do to make the first overture to God. Nothing. We cannot please God. Uh, we cannot call upon the name of the Lord. Okay. No one can do anything in order to reach out to God to make the first move for salvation. God must act first. And in fact, God must act to overcome that depravity. Okay. If we are incapable of expressing faith, God has to render us capable of expressing faith. That is, he has to overcome our sinful nature, and the means whereby he does that is by the impartation of the new nature. Okay, And so God gives us a new nature. He creates a believer whose immediate response then is the exercise of faith. Okay? So we're going to treat then the efficacious call and regeneration together because regeneration is that which makes the call of God efficacious. I want to spend a little time talking about uh, some of the major understandings about the human role in coming to Christ for salvation. I'm going to be using these terms throughout the course, uh, so I think it's uh, fairly important that we do this, Okay. Pelagianism first. I don't know why it says four. It should say five. So five major understandings. Fix it right now. Five major understandings of the human role in coming to Christ for salvation. Pelagianism first. Pelagianism is named after a fourth century heretic by the name of Pelagius, naturally. Um, and uh, what he did was deny the fact of original sin. And he maintained that by their own native powers... Men are capable of doing everything that God requires of them for salvation. Okay, so uh, this is the most you know, man-empowering approach uh, to salvation. God doesn't actually have to do anything. We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do and accomplish everything that God expects us to do. Okay, and so this this idea here: if I ought, I can. Okay, so God tells me. I ought to embrace him by faith, and I must embrace him by faith. And if he says that, then it it follows necessarily that I must be able to do so. Okay, And so uh, the doctrine of 
total depravity notwithstanding, the Pelagian says that sin is not so bad that I cannot reach out to God. Semi-Pelagianism is a step removed from this. It does affirm original sin, but denies that the original sin ultimately affects humans, the man's ability to come to Christ. So man is crippled, injured, damaged in some way, but he can sort of gasp out and, and reach out ever so feebly for God. And, and, and if man does that, God responds graciously with, and, and meets him what, with what they call cooperating grace. Okay. So man makes the first overture to God, feeble though it may be, and God responds with cooperating grace. We move then to the idea of Arminianism. Arminianism. This is uh, named after a 16th century figure. Uh, lived at the same time as John Calvin. So we would see those two uh, sort of battling back and forth. Arminianism does believe in original corruption. And in fact, uh, argues that man is totally depraved. However... When Christ died on the cross, he supplied for all persons everywhere what he called prevenient grace, which means grace that goes before. And this prevenient grace is an ability, not a complete reversal of depravity, but the ability to call upon God. So God has to act first in the death of Christ to give everybody on the planet the ability to reach out for God. Okay, so God restores human ability to respond to the call of God. So grace makes the initial overture to man, but man must cooperate with God in order to achieve regeneration. So I've got to, I've got to, I, I've got to respond to the call. Modified Calvinism, if I can put this this way, affirms that there is original guilt, there's corruption, inability, Denies that there is any such thing as prevenient grace that everybody gets that makes them able uh, to call upon the name of the Lord, but holds that the human in faith and repentance to God's individual and gracious summons in order to realize regeneration. Okay, so God's so God acts on the cross and He acts within time then to give to individual persons a specific ability to call upon the name of the Lord and he then regenerates them in response to the faith uh, that they exercise. Okay, so um, again, uh, it gives a little bit more uh, authority to mankind uh, than uh, we, we, we see in, in Calvinism. Nonetheless, what we find God doing is an individual and efficacious work. So he graciously summons, effectually summons people to come to him in faith. And when, once they do, God gives them new life. Calvinism, full-bodied Calvinism, if I can put it that way, affirms original guilt, corruption, total depravity, inability, denies the idea of universal grace, and holds that humans respond in faith and repentance to God's work of regeneration. Okay. So it's not as though we believe and receive new life, but rather we receive new life and then we believe. Okay. So, so if we can sort of keep those categories in our heads, uh, we can sort of, uh, sort of, you know, peg, uh, the ideas that, uh, that come to mind as we, as we talk about the topic. Any, any questions on those five terms? Yes, uh, Mark, I, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking on the, on the term Arminianism. Mm-hmm. It, it seems that in, in my experience that there are, uh, I hate to use the word rainbow because of its context now, but, but shades, shall I say shades, there's different shades of Arminianism that, that, uh, you know, that, that people give, and I would generally define it up to this point anyway, of, of man-centered uh, in one's 
uh, soteriology that, that it places more of an emphasis on man. And, uh, but it, aren't there, it seems like there are shades of Arminianism. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's true. There's, I'll say a couple of things to that. I think sometimes we actually give Semi-Pelagians the benefit of the doubt and call them Arminians for one. Okay. That's, that's, I think that, that's, that's, you know, we, we use the word Arminian fairly routinely, but there's actually very few Arminians, pure Arminians out there. It's, it's sort of a niche group. Um, very few people are theological Arminians. Most of the folks that we come into contact with, which have a rather the man-centered approach, probably fall into the semi-Pelagian category. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to bad mouth, but I mean, but you know, the school I went to, Tennessee Temple, it just seemed like that was kind of heavy on the Arminianism that, that, especially with their, the bus ministry of Highland Park Baptist Church and that going out and getting them, getting them, getting them, getting them. And the big emphasis on numbers and, and all that, that just seemed to be real Arminian. Right. Yeah. And, and, and whenever you have a, a situation where, where manipulation is in view, you, you've got this idea that you can manipulate the heart of the individual. Yeah. Manipulation. Work. Oh, right. Big time. So, so, so anytime you're talking about manipulation, we've actually gone beyond Arminianism, I think, into semi-Pelagianism. The idea here is there's something that we can trigger, something that we can wake up in an individual by what we say, but by what we do, by the slickness of our presentation or whatever the case may be, the, the lilting strands of the organ music or whatever the case may be, uh, that, that I can actually sort of trigger people to embrace Christ. And once you, once you, once you go that route, I think you've actually moved into the, the, the semi-Pelagian category. And then wouldn't you, that term that's used in evangelism, closing the net, wouldn't that kind of fall on that? Yeah, all the times, yes. Closing the net, getting them in? Yeah. The, uh, now, I, I, there is, there are actually two kinds of Arminians. I said it's in each group, it's the smallest group on the, on, in, in, on the list here. At the same time, there's sort of two variations. Uh, there, there are Arminians who believe that God universally gives prevenient grace to everybody on the planet. And there's, a, there's also a, a, a small group, uh, of Arminians who believe that God gives prevenient grace in the preaching of the gospel. Okay. So if, if nobody ever hears, if someone never hears the word of God preached, they actually don't have this prevenient grace. The prevenient grace is sort of wrapped up in the hearing of the, uh, of the gospel preached. Uh, so, so some do not have a universal expression of prevenient grace, uh, but all of them have prevenient grace that extends out to people who are unbelievers, making it possible for them to embrace Christ, but certainly does not coerce them. Uh, to embrace Christ, compelled. Yeah. Other thoughts? Other questions? Dr. Snowberger. Yes, ma'am. So, what if, like, a, someone had the preaching style of the semi-Pelagianism and decisions were made, quote unquote, for Christ? Do you think they truly were conversions, or sometimes? Some, sometimes, sometimes not. And, uh, I think that's the, uh, the, the grace of God in, in, in action, right? Uh, that despite the means, you know, you know how Paul talks about, you know, there, there are, there are his, his, there are, he's got these competitors, people who are preaching, um, in <clears throat> such a way that, uh, is, is, is contrary to what the scriptures say. And yet in the grace of God, he saves people anyway. Uh, so, so usually a thin form of the gospel is being presented and by the grace of God, he does save people, mm-hmm. um, uh, through the works of Arminians and Semi-Pelagians. And, and we thank God for that because probably some of us sitting here right now looking at our screens, uh, are in that category, right? Yeah. Cause I think that probably, I grew up in that. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the more like my sanctification, I'm learning these things. So. Well, right. You know what, what Spurgeon says, everybody who, who comes to Christ sees the words, whosoever will may come. And then once they're in, they realize, you know, it really wasn't something I did. 
Right. But right. from the outside coming in, it's what it sort of appears to be. Uh, and so the, the fact is, you you may have been in a situation where uh, this whosoever will net was cast open in, in, in terminology and words and presentations that should never have happened. At the same well, time, you walked through the door and, and God saved you. Well, I had the same, even like in a Christian school where I would doubt my salvation because this Bible teacher would just, you know, just go through, did you say the right prayer? And it was all about what I did or did not do. And so I was constantly wondering, did I say the right things? Did I have the right faith? And so it was all about me. Yeah, that's good. And we'll talk about the assurance of salvation too, because I think that uh, that's towards the end of the course, because I think that's an experience of a lot of people. They're not sure exactly how they can have confidence that they were in fact born again. And, and so we'll, we'll actually walk through some of that. Okay. The end of the course. So good questions. Okay. So let's look at this call here. Uh, we sometimes talk about two aspects of the call of God, the general call and the efficacious call. But the fact is there's really only one call um, and, uh, and two aspects of that one call. The first is the general call. We sometimes call that the gospel call. Uh, we, we appeal to people to be saved. And so anytime you share the gospel and you ask people to embrace Jesus Christ and submit to him, you are issuing, as it were, a general call, a gospel call. And so this is that uh, call whereby God urgently invites all who hear the gospel to come and be saved. He doesn't differentiate here between elect and non-elect. He calls upon all to be saved. And the general call has the following characteristics. It's non-discriminatory. Isaiah 45 says, look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Because So this, this call is, is sent out broadly. There is no distinction in the call. It's everyone. Call upon the name of the Lord. Come to me, Matthew eleven twenty eight. All you who are weary and heavy laden. That includes a lot of people, right? And I will give you rest. Acts seventeen thirty. God commands all people everywhere to repent. So this is not so much a gospel summons as as much as a, as a gospel mandate. Here, you must do this. God commands us to. Revelation twenty two. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost, whosoever will, let him come, take it, okay? Um, Now, I I should make sure we recognize that the general call to salvation and general revelation aren't the same thing. We talked about general revelation as being God's general uh, disclosure of himself and, you know, in the birds and the skies and the trees and and uh, in your own your own conscience that's not the same thing as the general call to salvation the general call to salvation has to include the features of the gospel has their specificity associated with the general call so general call is broad everybody gets it the 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 general call to salvation only goes out to those who actually hear the gospel and in fact without a preacher without someone sent no one we find would actually receive this call um in fact that's the that's the appeal that's made how how can they hear how how will they hear without a preacher how will how will someone go out unless they're sent and so that's why we have to be participants as believers in the task of evangelism it's not as though it just generally goes out automatically to everybody this is mediated through believers who share the gospel. Okay. And, and I, I want to sort of have something of a drumbeat of that as we work our way through this. And sometimes, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, those who are Calvinistic are accused of being opposed to evangelism. And, uh, I, I'm very hopeful. In fact, I'm insistent that by the time you get to the end of this course, you will not be confused in that, in that, in that matter. Uh, we have to be participants in the gospel call. We're the ones who issue the gospel call. Very rarely does a person 
receive the gospel call without any sort of Christian delivering it to them. You know, it, it happens. You know, somebody picks up a Bible, reads through it, gets saved. But the, the, the occasions of that happening are extraordinarily rare. Normally, we hear because we've been taught, because we've heard the message. And so uh, it, it's very important that we recognize that. It's not just something that generally goes out without your help or mine. It's, it's something that we have to be mediators of. Now, this general call may be resisted. Isaiah 65, 12, I called, you didn't answer. I called, you refused. The evil one comes here, snatches away the seed. And you've done this, right? You've, you've shared the gospel, and it just seemed like it bounced. Okay, and so the seeds are, are gobbled up. Um, many are called, few are chosen. Okay, so the, the number of people who receive the gospel call are greater than the number who actually are saved. Matthew 23, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Okay, so, so what we can say rather certainly here is that this general call may be resisted and in fact, so long as it stays just a general call, it is always resisted because of total depravity, right? It may engender some curiosity, may produce interest, may be accompanied by a work of conviction that causes depression, anxiety about your spiritual state. But the general call has no inherent enabling mechanism that can make someone to respond in faith in order for the call this general call to become an effective call or an efficacious call god actually has to send an additional work that is his regenerating work okay so you know and and, and it is kind of interesting you know you open up the uh the the church service for for testimonies or prayer requests and oftentimes the language now, now you're going to be now you're going to be critical of of, of people now when that when you when this happens but oftentimes you'll hear you know so and so neighbor relative friend whatever is really close to getting saved you know and probably that language is a little bit off <laughs> because you know salvation happens in a moment okay now it is possible using some of the terms that are on in your notes here that because of the conversation they've their curiosity has been piqued. They might have some interest in religious topics, and so they're having a conversation. They, they, again, there there may even be some anxiety uh, because they recognize that your message is true, but they are unwilling to do what is necessary in order, you know, that they, they don't want to give up the life they have, whatever the case may be. Um, and so, and so that it's it's not as though when we give the gospel out. And people don't respond. It's not as though usually we're talking to a brick wall, right? We're actually talking to persons who are actually able to receive the information, digest it, understand what you're saying, and respond to it. Now, they may respond negatively here, but the fact is everybody responds to the gospel in some sense. So, um, you know, maybe just to, you know, so refine some of your vocabulary when you're giving those prayer requests. You know, I, I've got a, I've got a friend, I've got a neighbor. Got a relative who's who's curious about the gospel, and I, I'd really like you to pray that God will regenerate that person. Uh, it does it, yeah. Close to salvation sort of is is is, is language that doesn't really work uh, with what we know of what the scriptures say. Now, so, okay, go ahead. Yeah, question. So you wouldn't say that someone could be called over a period of time, and then the final act as regeneration right well uh, yeah i mean you can you can, yeah they can receive the general call over time and uh engage in conversation over time but but regeneration occurs in a moment it's right. not something that just sort of you ease into uh over the, it's a it's a it, the lights go on bang it doesn't mean that you can't give the gospel multiple times and you know and 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 and, and the, it's it's not as though the the evangelistic task is just a matter of simply telling them once. Um, 
So you God's can, you, not working. Uh, God's not calling that person to the to the point of regeneration, no matter how many times they hear the gospel. It, it's uh, yeah. So so the idea it's not it's not as though God is softening them up over the course of years, okay. and then finally, you know, finally thrusts the sword in. Um, it you know you may that that person may hear the gospel multiple times and so it is possible that the call goes out dozens of times scores of times okay. uh, for any one individual and we should pray with that same intensity and frequency scores of times dozens of times for that individual but what we are praying for is something that happens in a moment not okay. something that happens gradually Some would suggest that the call of God is insincere because he is calling on people to do something they can't do. Okay. Right. That's the, that's the, that's the big question with inability. I mean, we've sort of hammered over and over that there's this idea of depravity. There's inability. There's nothing a person can do uh, to respond to God unless that call is attended by regeneration. You say, well, that's just not fair. So God is calling, 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 and does not make it possible for them to respond. That doesn't seem sincere of God to do that. Okay, but uh, if, if we can put it this way, the, the, the inability that we have is not a natural one, but a moral one. What I mean by that is man has not lost his chooser. Okay, man, man is by definition as a person, a free creature. He actually makes choices. Um, the problem with mankind is not that he doesn't have a chooser or that his chooser is broken. Instead, what it means is that man always chooses according to the dominant impulse of his nature. And what is broken is his nature. Okay, it's, his, his nature is broken. Not his chooser, per se, but his nature. That is why he is described here as totally depraved or in, unable to respond. And so we can say that God is sincere in his call and that man is culpable for his refusal because it's, again, this, this whole idea of, of when we, when we give out the gospel, it's not as though we're talking to brick walls and, you know, it just bounces off. And we hope sometime that, you know, by the, by the grace of God, you know, it, it, it sinks in sometime. The fact is that they are making a conscious and deliberate decision to hate on God, to express hostility towards God every time they reject the general call. And, and it's for that reason that they are culpable and liable to the fires of hell because they deliberately and eagerly reject God. Okay. So it, it, it's, it's not as though, um, they really want to embrace God, but they just can't. It's, they really don't want to embrace God. And unless God actually breaks that through regeneration, uh, then they won't. Okay. And so Ezekiel 18, do I have any death in the, a pleasure in the death of the wicked declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Why do you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. And we find multiple occasions here in the scriptures where God seeks and desires the salvation of men and women everywhere. Uh, it is not because he lacks the desire or the sincerity uh, to, to save uh, but actually, it is the recalcitrance of man uh, that is actually uh, the, the problem here. There's some really good discussions of this. One of the best ones is Jonathan Edwards' book, Freedom of the Will. So not only do people routinely reject the general call, but they are culpable. They're guilty. They're responsible for rejecting that call. Second Thessalonians 1, God will deal out retribution. For those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Hebrews 12, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking the gospel. For if those did not escape when they refused him 
who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. How shall we escape? How, how shall we escape uh, if, if we neglect so great a salvation? Okay, so uh, the general call is then made effective, made efficacious by regeneration. So the efficacious calls, so-called because it accomplishes or effects with the E, not the A, uh, the effects a positive response to the call of salvation. It involves a direct individual work of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the gospel message that leads the sinner out of darkness into light and brings him to the point of faith and repentance. We've got good evidence for this as well. And it sort of explains why, you know, some of these texts almost seem to be opposite each other. I called and you refused. And and then we look at this list and if God calls, it happens. So we have to understand that there are two aspects of this call. John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise that person up in the last day. So if the father draws this efficacious drawing, I will raise that person up in the last day. Okay. John 665, no one can come to me unless the father enables him. We know that God causes all things, Romans 828, to work for, together for God, for good to those who love God, to them who are the called. Okay, so the called here are those who express love in God. Okay, so obviously this is not a general call because this is specifically a promise to those who are effectively called by God according to his purpose. Two verses later, those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Sometimes called this golden chain, right? There's an identity here between those who are called and those who are glorified. If God calls you, he will glorify you. First Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, stumbling block to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, whether Jew or Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay, So the called here effectively are the elect, those who are elect and are called within time by God. Uh, first, second Peter one ten, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain that he has called and chosen you. That's the thing. You just have to make sure you've heard the gospel. No, you have to make sure that he has effectively called you, that he has chosen you. And how do you do that? Well, the, the, if you, if you look through second Peter one, it actually gives you all of the things that believers who are truly called by God will, will do how they will respond in faith. And so there's these, they, add, they will add to their faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, knowledge, temperance, and a whole list of these virtues that start to cultivate and develop in the life of the person. And, and the conclusion, if you have these things, you've got a way paved into the kingdom. If you don't have these things, then beware, because you may be blind. You may be dead. And so... Take, take note. And so, and so, so be sure that God has called you. How? By observing whether you've responded favorably to the call. And the reason here uh, that uh, this, this works is because God has regenerated us. Okay. So this is the power of the efficacious call, uh, the work of regeneration. Natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him. He can't understand him because they were are appraised by means of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Okay, so the natural man hears the call, this general call. He doesn't accept it. He regards it as foolishness. He doesn't understand it for what it is because he doesn't have the mechanism necessary to properly appraise the Christian gospel. Once he receives the spirit, once he becomes in context, becomes the spirit man, right? The context here is detailing the carnal man versus the spiritual man, the fleshly man and the spiritual man. And the spiritual man, the man with the spirit, is able to correctly appraise the gospel 
and respond to it. And it's because a spirit man is one who has been indwelt. He's been spirit energized, been given new life in Christ. And so this verse teaches that the efficacy of the gospel message hinges on the indwelling presence of the spirit called a couple of verses later, the mind of Christ. The natural man, the unregenerate man, cannot welcome or properly evaluate the gospel message because he doesn't have a new nature. But we have a new nature. And so that's what regeneration is, the impartation of uh, the new nature. We've already exhausted our time here, so we've got some uh, more to talk about here with the uh, with the doctrine of regeneration. Uh, but uh, any questions up till this point, we'll sort of pick it up here. I know it's sort of a little awkward place to stop here. Uh, but any questions you have up till this point? I do have a question um, yes. to back up a little bit. Um, last week we were talking, or a little while ago, we were talking about people that say that they were saved, but they can't recall a specific time. Mm-hmm. Um, or I've heard people say they were just raised in the church and they just knew this. Yeah. Um, they just knew that they were saved. Now, can you clarify that with what you said about regeneration occurs in a moment? Right. Uh, regeneration does occur in a moment. There is a moment in which we receive the Holy Spirit and we have new life and we become believers. Okay. So it happens in a moment, but I think it is possible for someone not to recognize the moment, right? And it's, I think it's particularly uh, difficult for someone like a child who is a, is a, for instance, a very compliant child, uh, someone who just, you know, nods his head and does everything that mom and dad tell him to do. And they, and they're, you know, there's a, there's a, an innocent naivety that they just believe everything mom and dad say, you know, you, and you can, you know, a lot of kids are like that, right? You can tell them about Santa Claus and yeah, they believe it, you know, and, and so, and so, so there are, there are children who are told about God by mom and dad and, you know, they, they, it's all they've ever known. They've never had reason to doubt it. Um, and so they, they grow up in this context and they perhaps never sowed their wild oats, uh, like some of us did, right? Um, and so, so there's, there's, and, and often it is those children who just, you know, they, they're not sure that the assurance of salvation is, did I say the prayer? Did I say the, did I, when did I, which, which prayer was it? I said, I said this prayer four times because I wasn't sure any of them took. And so you, and so you have children and young adults who say, I, I tried to do everything I was supposed to do, but I'm not sure if and when it took. And that's where I think it's really important that this, this, this question of assurance has to be properly answered. The assurance of salvation is not found in the event and identifying the event, you know, putting a date in, your, in front of your Bible or, or, or whatever the case may be. It's the fruits of regeneration that is the source of our assurance. Okay. Uh, and, and so that, that's, that's I, where, where I think you sort of answer that person. It's not that he or she wasn't saved in a moment, but there are those who are unable to identify when that moment happened. And that's not a threat to what we've said here about regeneration tonight. I don't know if that helps. Yes, it does. Thank you. Okay. Well, we've already exhausted our time here, so we'll go ahead and cut off here. And we'll come up and pick up sort of in the middle of our our conversation here next time. Okay? Thanks for coming through, and we'll see you next week.